0: Welcome to The Spectacular Century, conversations about 19th century performance and visual culture. I'm Kate Holmes, I'm a performance historian based out of the University of Exeter.
1: I'm Jim Davis and I'm a theatre historian based at the University of Warwick.
0: I'm Kate Newey, I'm a theatre historian at the University of Exeter. I'm Patricia Smith and I'm an art historian working at the University of Warwick. And we're part of an AHRC project working on theatre and visual culture in the long 19th century. So what are we going to be talking about?
1: I'll be talking with Kate Newey about melodrama as more than the trash that some people used to consider it to be.
0: Well, I did my PhD on melodrama about... Oh, crikey, I don't know how many years ago. And what I found was when I first started to work on it, it was in an English literature department, and people said to me, well, no wonder no-one's ever looked at melodrama because it's just really bad writing and it's really bad theatre and really... English literature in the theatre between Sheridan at the end of the 18th century and Shaw at the end of the 19th century the rest of it's just embarrassing so Jim what do you think you know why have you and I spent our scholarly research careers talking about melodrama reading it teaching it what attracts you?
1: Well, I had the same experience as you did in terms of people saying, why are you working on melodrama? Why are you working on the 19th century when you could be working on something important like the Renaissance? And I think there's been a sort of ingrained prejudice against non-literary forms of theatre for many, many years. And in the last 30, 40, 50 years, there has been a small but growing nucleus of academics and scholars who have tried to reconstitute, um, explore 19th century popular forms of theatre, including melodrama. And basically, theatre is not about just the literary word about language, it's also about visual, it's also about spectacle and melodrama is an innately theatrical form, way beyond just literary parameters and once you start thinking about theatre outside of the literary and you think of theatre as a much broader, encompassing a much broader range of experience then melodrama becomes central. And after all, it was uh, something that appealed for over 100 years as the main form of popular entertainment.
0: Yeah, and I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, that you were told, oh, why aren't you working on the Renaissance? Because really, that means Shakespeare, doesn't it? And people would say to me, well, it's not like Shakespeare, is it? I'd go, well, Shakespeare was quite melodramatic, really. And it, it starts to get into what we think is melodrama in the 19th century there's a kind of a form that gets identified as melodrama it gets called that it comes from the French word for plays with music but there's also this idea of the melodramatic so I think we'll probably need to unpick that but to start with we should probably talk about what we think melodrama actually is in the 19th century. I mean, I don't know about you, but I was taught that the first melodrama on the London stage was Thomas Holcroft's translation of a French melodrama. In English, it was called A Tale of Mystery. And that was, what, 1802, I think? What was it about that play, I wonder, that really grabbed people's attention as some kind of new form. What is it about melodrama that grabbed people in this early part
1: of the 19th century, do you think? Well, I I think melodrama, not only through the use of music, but also through quite sensational emotional moments, um, actually responded to the actual sort of lived experience Mm. of its spectators. It obviously created suspense, excitement and, you know, many other sorts of uh, qualities in terms of the sort of theatrical entertainment it, it offered. But basically, melodrama was about heightened emotional experience Represented, really, in everyday terms. I mean, when you referred to Shakespeare earlier, Shakespeare's tragedies are about, very often, um, heightened emotional states yeah, and heightened yeah. emotional moments. Mm. And that's exactly what melodrama
0: mm, in mm.
1: Uh, sort of everyday life is. It's about <laughs> heightened emotion. And
0: that's the really interesting political thing about melodrama, isn't it? Like Hamlet, for example, okay, echt Shakespearean tragedy, the tragedy, Right. And you could say, on the one level, that's about heightened emotional family dynamics. You know, your your uncle kills your father and marries your mother, and people wonder why you're a bit sad. But the thing about Hamlet that takes it out of just being, you know, East Enders family drama, is that they're running Denmark. This is this is the royal family. But what gets really interesting, what, what you're talking about with the heightened emotion. In melodrama is this is about ordinary people and there's this sort of idea that the lives of ordinary people are worthy of putting on stage that's quite
1: revolutionary isn't it absolutely and I think the particularly interesting uh, issue around melodrama which of course in a way comes out of the French Revolution mm. um, um, among other sources it's a demotic form yeah and it brings to uh, working-class spectators, for instance, their lives, as well as, of course, in some instances, the lives of bourgeoisie and other classes as well. But basically, melodrama reveals that all of us have you know, emotional highs and lows. Mm-hmm. It reveals that everyday life and just ordinary people are worthy of being represented, even celebrated, in the yeah. drama. Yeah. And I think one of the problems with uh, attitudes to melodrama, has not only been military sort of snobbery mm. around its mm. uh, language, but also the sort of snobbery about proletarian entertainment, about yeah. the sort of working-class entertainment, as if there's a high culture, a low culture, and the low culture doesn't count.
0: Yeah, and yet one of the stories one of the histories of melodrama, isn't it, that it comes out of the French Revolution and you've got the playwright, oh, my French is terrible, Gilbert de Pixericourt, who was a playwright at around about the time of the French Revolution. So we're talking 1780s, 1790s in Paris. And he was known as the boulevard playwright. So these theatres that were popular, short-lived, they weren't the grand. Well, this was not the Paris opera or the... Theatre Royal Drury Lane or any of those grand theatres. And Pixéricourt wrote these really fast-moving plays. He said he wrote for audiences who couldn't read, you know, what, what they called in France the, the sans-culottes. Is that right? The the the, the kind of proletarian, revolutionary mm. poor. There was a concern about that, that these people were getting together and, and getting all emotional. But I guess one of the things that I've always wondered about, and I was, I, you know, part of my PhD was about melodrama as a kind of radical political form. And I think that my ideas about that have changed since I did all that research because no one really, I'm not sure what changed in the world after melodrama. Well,
1: can I, I think there's two sort of riposte to that. One is. Um, as well as the political, and this goes back to Pixarical, there's a moral Mm, element to melodrama, mm, mm. often in a sort of Manichaean way of the sort of bad versus good.
0: So that's one story about the French Revolution and how melodrama comes out of that radical overturning. You know, this is when France becomes Mm. a republic. It gets imported to Britain. What happens to it
1: then, though? I mean... Well, I I mean, there's a lot of adaptation of French melodramas throughout the 19th century. But I think also we should bear in mind that melodrama is very much a moral form as well. It's very much, uh, not always, but quite often is in a fairly simple way, encompassing the notion that bad versus evil is something that is the way we live our lives and that, you know, ideally... Bad is overcome by good. This um, is this is what we mean by melodramatic,
0: then, isn't it? If we go right back to where we started about melodrama and the melodramatic, the I- isn't it that the idea that you've got good and you've got evil, and there's
1: a clash? Yeah, which which is central to the sort of dramatic mm. quality of melodrama. Mm. It provides a fairly simple view of the world, and you could you could argue that melodrama has become a way of seeing and is still dominating popular entertainment Mm, even mm. today in terms of presenting a rather simple view of the world we live in. And it was obviously an argument against melodrama in the 19th century. That it
0: oversimplified Mm, the complexities. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting you say that about we still live with it today because I'm just thinking about the, the kind of structuring of reality television, for example, where, you know, in, in um, I don't know, Dragon's Den or Big Brother, which is an old one now, that's really retro, or one I don't watch, but my but I know lots of people do, Love Island, right, where someone is set up as the the bad guy, so you, should, you know, or the, the, the bitch, if I'm allowed to say that word. <laughs> um, and... Uh, It's edited and structured so that we, the audience, kind of connect to the moral debate. Mm. Do you think that's the, the real politics of melodrama then, is the moral debate, rather than the kind of party politics or parliamentary or law, you know?
1: Well, I think morality is a central feature of melodrama. But I think also we have to look at why people had such a sort of negative view of 19th century melodrama. And Mm -hmm. I think that sort of takes us back really to the size of the theatres it was performed in, the style of acting, and the ways in which melodrama represented to um, some people even today. um, 19th century melodrama is all about over-the-top acting, oversimplified plotting and Mm, uh, mm. just a sort of exaggeration of life. But it was taking place in huge theatres Mm, where mm. you needed all of that overemphasis to communicate to audiences.
0: Yeah, because you couldn't necessarily hear... If you were right up at the top of a theatre that held over a thousand people without amplification... Mm. You know, this is pre-amplification, it's pre-electric lighting Mm. in the theatre... The theatre auditoria are still... They're not as brightly lit as the stage, but they're still lit. We're not sitting in darkness and silence here. Melodrama performance had to be really direct and clear, didn't it? I mean, this is where music's really interesting in this respect, isn't it? I remember doing an experiment with a very famous melodrama from 1829 called Black-Eyed Susan, which made the career, didn't it, of the, uh, the actor... Uh,
1: William Thomas Potter... Thomas Potter Cook.
0: That's right, Thomas Potter Cook, yes. And And he played William.
1: And I saw your experiments.
0: Yes, yeah. And so what we found was we had this music, we had a pianist to play the music of the entrance of William, the hero, the first time he came on, Thomas Potter Cook, I blanked on his name. And it went on for probably 16 bars, which is quite a long time if you're just entering from the wings of the stage to get to the centre of the stage. So the actor playing William had to make up all sorts of things to make this entrance. It was really interesting watching... We had a woman playing this. You know, She played all the roles. <laughs> um, She's a professional um, singer, really, more than anything. And she, she really said, once you start working with the music, you realise the size of the performance mm. that has to happen.
1: Well, I think this is again another problem when people read melodramas today. They're yeah. not actually envisaging how lengthy melodrama could be in terms of in in the example you're taking, the Sir court martial scene where all these people parade on stage. It takes you a minute to read that scene but the music is about 10 minutes long. And it's very long and slow. I remember we improvised yeah. that scene
0: with students as well as the the professional and performers. Can
1: I just add, yeah. of course, while we're talking about music very briefly, it's also there to create mood, atmosphere, represent characters. It actually provides exactly the sort of score that in more recent years film, television mm. often provides. And of course, you know, if you... Look at Wagnerian opera and so on. Yeah. The motifs that Wagner uses are, are a sophisticated version of melodrama and motifs. And this
0: takes us right back to what you were talking about earlier, we're both really interested in, is this idea of melodrama as, as this representation of heightened emotion. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's where melodrama as a genre that we can recognise has a particular existence in the 19th century, a particular structure in existence, I guess that's part of where it meets with the melodramatic which is still with us, as you say, in film and television. And And also, it's uh,
1: inevitably not just about heightened emotion which I think is where the perjurative notion of melodrama has really been problematic because Mm. it is about big emotions as we Mm. were saying earlier but Mm. also it's about those circumstances that create suspense, Mm. tension Mm. uh, Mm. a sort of heightened emotional reaction. It's, It's not just something where people are exaggerating their responses if you're caught in an avalanche if you're in a set tube with a villain, if you're in an explosion, you don't just behave as you would in everyday life. And I think it sort of leads to one other point I'd make there, which is that melodrama in the way it showed the world to its contemporary audiences Mm. is showing a form of heightened realism as well.
0: Yeah. It's really interesting, isn't it, that we tend to think of realism as a very low-key, colloquial low-voices, you know, kind of pinter or uh, Harold Pinter's work of this very colloquial, not saying very much, or um, uh, you know, television where they don't say very. There's not much dialogue, whereas the 19th century realism was quite a different form. Well, actually, an approach to representing the world.
1: I, I was going to disagree with you briefly about Pinter and say it's highly stylized, oh, well, in my yes. view, but yeah. just as melodrama would appear to people today to be yeah. highly stylized. Oh, no, good point. And there's a sort of, there is that sort of, you know, theatrical representation requires a stylization of sorts, mm. even to give the illusion of realism or reality. Well,
0: there's that there's the famous French philosopher. Uh, Dennis Diderot who wrote a book well he didn't really write a book it was notes that were then published as a book in the mid-18th century called The Paradox of the Actor where he argued that when an actor appears to be most real and engaged with what we recognize as you know real emotion is the moment when the actor is actually the most technical is not feeling that at all and there is this long debate in the 19th century isn't there about what acting is. We haven't got time to go into that. that would, that's but, uh, that's uh, another discussion. But there's a long debate about whether actors really felt what they performed.
1: Well, we, we know that melodrama actors had to be technically accomplished. The enormous mm. leaps that people like N.T. Hicks was famous for, the fact that the musical accompaniment meant, you know, the skills almost of a dancer. Mm. Um, we mm. know that in terms of declamation... Filling a huge theatre without any form of uh, help in terms of amplification requires enormous vocal but also breathing skills as well. So we're talking about very technically accomplished actors who certainly, again, provide the illusion of a real and often heightened situation. Mm, but, mm. It, you know, there's a technique behind that yeah. sort of acting, as there is with opera singing, as there is with Shakespeare. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's, it, the technique is very important. And when we talk about exaggerated melodramatic acting, we don't talk about exaggerated performers in opera we don't talk about exaggeration in shakespeare
0: no that's all accepted that people wander around speaking iambic pentameter blank verse and and you know it's a, it is interesting this 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 real block in our cultural thinking about melodrama and the melodramatic because it brings us lots of things doesn't it i'm thinking we we talked a bit about politics and we've talked about putting the lives of ordinary people on stage we get these stories of working class life, of of life of people who in the 19th century were increasingly sort of pushed and oppressed. We get wonderful stories of feisty heroines. There's something really valuable that we still have now about putting the lives of ordinary people on stage. I think we don't realise how revolutionary melodrama was well, for that.
1: Well, let's pick you up on feisty heroines because yeah. there's a sort of notion that melodrama heroines are always waiting to be saved by a hero yes, swooning called fainting, George, yeah. <laughs> that they basically, you know, can't do anything for themselves and a the villain is um, sort of taking control and all the rest of it. But actually melodrama is quite a broad church. You know, that actually the heroine sometimes especially in working class theatres are very feisty, self-sufficient very women. Very active, aren't and, they? Yes. And so that again, the the stereotypes around character and character behaviour mm. is, you know, is a problem because it's not as clear cut as that. No. And no. I think that's another problem we have with melodrama that people make assumptions that. One size fits all, and it's not the case.
0: Yeah, and in fact, we've been talking a lot about the early part of the 19th century with the way that melodrama's imported from France and then kind of naturalised into English domestic domesticity and the, the working class, the ordinary family. When we move to the second half of the 19th century, we get the development of sensation melodrama, which is about celebrating... People doing bad things. You know, we were talking earlier about melodrama being the fight between good and evil and good always winning. In the second half of the century, we get this whole move towards sensation melodrama where often the villain is the interesting character and we get villainous women as well, don't we? We get characters like uh, Lady Audley in a really popular novel that became a play, that became a series of films. Lady Audley's Secret. I mean, there was a, an adaptation of it for television only about ten years ago.
1: Well, I think, again, I mean, when we talk about sensation in melodrama, there are two strands. Mm-hmm. There's the melodrama based on the sensation novel. Yes. And there are the sensational melodramas with sensation scenes yeah. of Azul saltbusico created. That's right. And in a sense, one is very much about the situation of... It can be women, but it could be men. It's about Mm. sort of human behavior Mm. and that sensational human behavior in a sense. But there's also the sensation of natural disaster or triggered natural disaster. You know, you can cause an avalanche as well as actually be. That's right, yeah. Talking about
0: avalanches or um, bridges being blown up or railway crashes. All of those things get staged in melodrama, Absolutely. don't they? And, and when you think about it, they're not heightened. These things happen.
1: Well, exactly. So And um, and people's reactions are going to be appropriate to the mm. situation. I, I think mm. if I'm in a natural disaster, I'm not going to be behaving as I might be sitting here unless we suddenly sort of blow up as we're talking <laughs> and all the rest of it. But we get
0: so melodramatic that the, then, then the we, studio blows we, up.
1: We behave melodramatically. <laughs> but d- does this sort of seem a good moment to actually exchange views about what our favourite sensation scenes oh, are? yes.
0: Yeah, that's probably and that's probably a good way to kind of you know sum so, up what yeah. we think about melodrama. Well, one of the things that, that is part of that sensation is the idea of the cliffhanger. You know, so we can as an audience we can see how things are all gonna happen, and then we're left at the end of an act, at the end of, you know, a a, a kind of structure of the play, with thinking, oh my goodness, what's and the curtain comes down and then the next scene. So I'm thinking what my favorite sensation scene is. Well, a play called After Dark by Dion Boussico, who probably invented the sensation scene, right? in the 1850s with with these natural disasters. And I saw a production of it at a small London theatre above the pub, the Finborough Arms, maybe about five years ago. And they did a railway crash in a 40-seat theatre. And it was extraordinary. And you really felt that this railway engine was coming into the audience on top of you. And they created it through theatrical illusion, really clever production stuff. So again, it was a wonderfully realistic effect that made me go, oh, my God, created through really high level of technical knowledge and achievement. And in this case, it was the the kind of, you know, the technical manager of the production, the stage manager and the production manager and so on. But it was really clever thinking. And this is a play that, that culminates in a disaster with staging a, a train wreck in the theatre. So that, for me, was was really revelatory of of just what you could do in the theatre. And, and you know, it didn't feel silly or over-the-top. No-one laughed. Mm. We all were engaged.
1: Can I raise a point, because I, I think... There's somebody saved from an oncoming train, but I don't think the train actually crashes. Um, No, you're right, but But it looks um, like the train is coming towards you. Oh, absolutely. It's it's, it's quite terrifying. I saw that production as well, and I I totally agree with you. Oddly enough, I also saw the Abbey Theatre from Dublin do a version of... um, Colin Bourne, where the sensation scene, the famous header into the water to save Ilya O'Connor, was just done in a totally stylized non-sensational OK, so way. now you
0: probably need to explain to me that Colin Bourne is the... it's not the first play by Dion Boussico, is it? But it's the play that really made him really famous for the sensation scene, which is what you're uh, describing. Absolutely,
1: where there's uh, somebody dives into the water and... Uh, and saves the heroine and that's that's a sensational and moment and that
0: happens on stage was there real water
1: no it's it was sort of um i think it was gauze water by then yeah. uh, you know they used to have wave cloths but this is it's, it's gauze so water. they had a
0: bit of material yeah um, that was painted <laughs> blue and they waved it they kind of had stage hands on either side making it
1: ripple um yeah. possibly yeah and all yeah. on top of that of course shaw saw a production much later on yeah. bernard shaw where they used real water, and you said it just looked ridiculous when they came back up. There was these two bedraggled performers just looking rather pathetic. So there's ways of creating those illusions as well. Can I just say, though, that if I was choosing an illusion, it would be probably the scene in The Bells where Henry Irving's character, Matthias, who has actually killed a Polish Jew many years before and that's what his fortune is based on. He suffers a sort of conscience for what he's done and at the end of the first act using a gauze backcloth suddenly from behind is a, a vision is lit of the murder by <gasps> Matthias of a Polish Jew. And it must be for the audiences of the time, but even yes. today if we yes. saw it perform, yes. a really sensational moment. Yeah. You really... It's also taking us into melodrama that begins to be more psychological in the yes, way it looks at character as well. So yeah. I, I could go on about that. But I but think that's
0: what's really interesting about that is the Bells is at the end of the century, isn't it? Yes, well, yeah. fairly late, and, 1870s. And, and, yeah, and, and so we're moving from the kind of visceral sensation of, say, the Miller and his men in, in the early 1810s where the mill blows up and we have an explosion on stage to this kind of internalised, psychological...
1: Absolutely.
0: ..sensation. Yeah, that's fascinating. And what's really interesting about that in terms of the history of melodrama, going right back to the start of our conversation about trash, you know, why have we spent our lives looking at this kind of, you know, bad theatre, supposedly bad Mm. theatre, is that the story of the British theatre is that melodrama got in the way... Of this development of internal psychological drama, that is of value because it's you know I don't know I don't know why it's of more, but in fact melodrama allowed it to happen.
1: Absolutely, and I think I think that is a sort of key point. I mean, you use the word trash, you use the word trash, and I mean. Interestingly, when I was at school, people used to wander around saying, would you like to buy some trash, meaning Superman comics and so on. (laughs) But now Superman is, you know, part of our popular culture and those comics are very much embedded in popular culture and people take them seriously as representative of a certain historical context. And I, I think in a way, you know, as we move forward, melodrama moves into other modes as well. And, in a sense, this is of course what's happened with melodrama into film into television mm. and so forth, mm. and that, in a sense, it may be that film and television do melodrama better today than melodrama itself, because we don't we don't require the theatre to stage the sorts of effects we can now see in other media yeah
0: yeah. I mean I think that's really interesting and and, it takes us right back to the beginning about why melodrama I think what's really interesting about what you're saying this translation into different forms of different media you know from the novel to the picture to the stage to the film to back to the you know the, the sort of circulation of melodrama through all sorts of forms of popular culture Actually, we don't realise, we, we, we swim in melodrama in popular culture well, nowadays. It's all around us so much that we don't recognise it.
1: Can I say, to dismiss melodrama, is um, historically, yeah. is to dismiss the culture we live in today. Yeah,
0: absolutely. This podcast is supported by the University of Exeter Drama Department and the Arts and Humanities Research Council.